you kind of start to see the world in stories. It's a very funny thing. You know, I walk down the street and I will actually like see a flyer or overhear someone say something and my brain goes, ding, ding, that's a story. <laughs> this is Lit and Lucy, your after work de-stress smoke sesh podcast. I'm your host, Lit. And I'm your host, Lucid. And we're going to take you on a journey. A journey to discover the truth and find the balance. Every week, we get deep on those thought-provoking topics that ooze out of the cannabis universe. But we also keep it real by illuminating important issues and people in today's culture. So kick back. Consume your favorite cannabis products. And get cozy cozy in the the Lit and Lucid lifestyle. Welcome, everybody, to the Lit and Lucid podcast. We are here recording another episode of the show. Today, we have a special guest. We have Shelby Hartman. She is the co-founder and editor-in-chief of Double Blind Magazine. You guys, it's a biannual magazine and educational platform on the forefront of the psychedelic movement, which is so exciting. We totally have like a crush on you guys online and just have been following you for so long. We have all of the magazines so far besides the first one. Um, So we love it. We're so excited to have you here and learn a lot more about Double Blind and yourself. So with that, welcome, Shelby. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And we are kind of, uh, we're breaking the mold today. We're getting into some other stuff. And in the past, we've kind of set the foundation for some psychedelics. And today, we're just going to go full bore into it. So we're going to change same things up a little bit. Normally, we ask our guests, are you a cannabis consumer? And we're going to switch it up and ask Shelby, have you had an experience with psychedelics? Of course. (laughs) Why would I start a magazine on psychedelics if I'd never done a psychedelic before? (laughs) Actually, we should be asking all the investors who are getting into the psychedelic space who have never done a psychedelic the same thing. Why are you putting your money towards something you have known nothing about? Um, But yeah, no, I mean, I, you know, I tripped for the first time when I was in college on mushrooms and had no idea what I was getting myself into. And they very quickly became an integral part of my journey. That's good to hear. Yeah. And I think that's kind of uh, some of a lot of our experiences really might have been, you know, mushrooms to start off and um, some might have been acid and some might have been MDMA or anything else, you know, ecstasy. And I know there's a lot of stuff out there. And I think, you know, what you guys are doing first and foremost is just kind of offering a platform to, to even just discuss those things. I know a lot of us, you know, we haven't really discussed it a lot on our show and that's because there's still a huge stigma attached to it. And really it's like frowned upon in society. And, uh, that's exactly what you guys have done with double blind and, uh, and created a platform where we can all safely discuss this stuff and not feel, you know, stigmatized or, um, like we're doing something wrong. So I think that's awesome to start off. Thank yeah. you. I mean, I, I think it's tough. Even Jared and I were just, you know, starting to dabble in it in the last, you know, two or so years. And even amongst our friends, it's a hard conversation to have, you know, because you're not sure what they're going to say or if they're into it or if they're not into it, if they're going to judge you. So it's it's still a tough conversation. I mean, we talk about cannabis all the time and we have stories on everybody, you know, still breaking those stigmas. Now the conversation of psychedelics, I feel like is a whole nother, you know, wormhole that we can get into of topics and breaking those types of stigmas down as well. Yeah. And kind of on that note, kind of while we're talking about this, you know, what inspired you to, to kind of put this out there and what inspired your journey into educating others about psychedelics? Well, you know, many people after they have their first very profound psychedelic experience, decide that it's their life's purpose to destigmatize psychedelics. (laughs) (laughs) 
Um, for me, uh, I would say it was a combination of, yeah, my, my personally profound experiences on psychedelics and also just the fact that, uh, selfishly psychedelics are a really interesting thing to write about because they allow me to touch on every single aspect of our society from the mental health epidemic to sort of the lack of meaning or spirituality that so many people have in their lives to our backwards pharmaceutical process. I really got into writing about psychedelics because it allowed me to talk about what I think is are many of the most prescient issues that we're facing in our society now. And then in writing about psychedelics, uh, both my co-founder and I realized that there was a massive knowledge gap uh, between the folks who were interested in embarking on a journey with psychedelics and the reliable and accessible information out there about them. Absolutely. And that's what I'm seeing. Like you guys are bringing forth so much education, even just like on your Instagram, like take out the magazine, you know, just even on Instagram, there's so many interesting things you're bringing up. I even saw the other day, there was like a lucid news media or something. And I was like, Jared, check this out. Like there's <laughs> lucid news. And like, I had no idea about it. So it's a really great platform just for people who are interested or the psychonauts out there to come together and have one database of really good quality information. Yeah, I love that um, you brought up how you know, psychedelics are an intersection for a lot of different topics. And um, I kind of felt that when we were preparing for the show and kind of figuring out things to discuss, I was like, the sky's almost the limit, really, because you guys touch on a lot of different things with your, you know, your mission with Double Blind and also kind of society where it's at today. There's a lot of different areas where psychedelics can be plugged in that could probably assist um, just a lot of the, you know, the human condition we're all being experienced to right now. Um, and so I love that. I think that it offers like a, a great base to, to discuss some of these things and also to kind of challenge some of these status quos that have been around for so long that are also being, um, you know, culturally challenged right now. I think it, it really lends well to a plethora of the conversations. Um, I'm curious, you know, and, and this is kind of uh, Lucy kind of led into it a little bit, though. Um, you guys started this as a print magazine at a time when, you know, print is kind of going the wayside. So I, I, I love that. And I think it's, it's a really like, it's a bold move, you know? So tell me more about kind of the intertwining of, you know, traditional print and kind of the digital aspect. Well, I wish I could tell you that I had a little, a little crystal ball that revealed to me that there's going to be a resurgence in the interest in print publishing and magazines. <laughs> But really, it wasn't a business decision at all. Uh, Madison and I met at Columbia Journalism School. Both of our areas of expertise, our bread and butter is sort of long form magazine style writing. And we just love it. We just love storytelling. We love amazing photos. And we just wanted to start a magazine. And so we did. And then when we realized people were hungry for this sort of content, we started thinking, you know, putting on our business caps and thinking more creatively about, okay, how are we going to fund this thing? And, you know, I guess we should try to find advertisers and I guess we should, you know, do events and I guess we should do other things. But, um, but really it from the beginning, it was just a labor of love. 
And you guys, the, this magazine, it's very different than, you know, your run-of-the-mill magazines. It's very intentional. The artwork in it is very pleasing. Um, every, like, even the front page, like, every single photo in it is so cool. Like, I'll go through it, and you've got to go back a couple of times. Um, how did that all start? Like, wh- how are you finding these artists and, like, pairing them with the stories? How does that whole creative process work? The, our third sort of unofficial co-founder is my college best friend, David Good, and he is an amazing graphic designer and artist. So my first call after having the idea for Double Blind was Madison. And then my second call was David, because I always knew that I wanted Double Blind to have a very strong visual identity. Um, and in terms of the creative process and finding artists, Uh, Madison and I are very lucky in that, you know, we spent our entire careers as journalists and went to a journalism school. And so we have lots of friends who are amazing artists and illustrators and photographers and writers. And when we put the first issue together, we literally had no money. So we just called all of our friends who are amazing at doing things and said, we have this idea and we can't pay you, but will you make something? (laughs) And everyone said yes. So, um, I mean, really that, you know, in terms of, um, you know, how does the sort of the whole process of making each magazine go, um, we just want there to be a diversity of content that reflects what Madison calls the kaleidoscopic perspectives within the psychedelic movement. Uh, We always knew that we wanted to talk to the scientists at the leading universities, and we wanted to talk to the indigenous leaders in the Amazon. And we wanted to talk to everyone in between. And um, in terms of of art and um, the art that we pair, we want a diversity of styles. We want everything from, you know, the BDSM photographer in Brooklyn to the, you know, visionary artist living in Oakland. I mean, the psychedelic community is extremely diverse. And so it only makes sense that our stories and our visuals should represent that diversity. I'm just wondering, like, where do you even start? I mean, because, you know, the diversity of it is is like profound, really, when you start discussing psychedelics. And, um, you know, you started this off by, you know, you want to talk with, you know, the, at the educational institutions and, and the science and the scientists. And then at the same time, you know, the indigenous side and the spiritual side and the religious side and um, the stuff that's happening in like South America and Mexico, and um, it all can't get forgotten. And um, and then at the same time, you know, you got like Denver decriminalizing psilocybin and Oregon decriminalizing all drugs. And you got like the war on drugs and creativity <laughs> and like, oh my God, it could go like on and on and on, you know? Um, how well, do you how do you guys like really like pair the content and kind of figure out, you know, what has precedence? Well, luckily we don't intend to shut double blind down anytime soon. So (laughs) there should hopefully my, my mouth to God's ears be many issues that can have space for all those various things. But I would say, you know, when you are a journalist, at least the journalists I know, you kind of start to see the world in stories. It's a very funny thing. You know, I walk down the street and I will actually like see a flyer or overhear someone say something and my brain goes, ding, ding, that's a story. (laughs) 
Madison and I both have a running list of, I mean, these giant Excel documents of all the story ideas we've had. Some are just a couple words, some are fleshed out. Some the, sometimes we see an artist we like on Instagram, we're like, that person's cool. We want to collaborate with them. Sometimes we're at a conference and we hear someone talk. There's lots of great psychedelic conferences and we're like, that person's amazing. We want to have them write something for the magazine. Um, and then when we sit down to plan each issue, we really think about our content in buckets. So we know that there are certain things that we want in every single issue. In every single issue, we want indigenous representation. And in every single issue, we want something that's talking about the current sort of movement to overturn psychedelic prohibition in the quote unquote West, whether that be uh, a story around policy and decriminalization or the pharma pharmaceuticalization of psychedelic compounds or something along those lines. We always know we want something on environmental justice and the climate and the relationship between individual, collective, and planetary healing. We always know we want something in the realm of social justice, whether that be something on, um, you know, um, on the continued uh, struggles among marginalized communities in this country to access resources for healing or something on, you know, how the queer community is using psychedelics um, in club culture or who knows what it is, but it's just something on, you know, counterculture and communities and, you know, basically who is doing psychedelics and how are they doing psychedelics outside of sort of the medical paradigm that we're trying to currently legalize. Um, so these are the various buckets of content. And then we just want to make sure we have a story in each bucket. Mm -hmm. I love that. That's it's incredible. So good. Yeah. It's such a good magazine, you guys, like I'm telling you. Um, one of the ones that was really fascinating to us was this Armenian photographer this just outside reality series and those photos were such a trip like I don't even know how she figured out how to do that but it was like so mind-blowing to me and like you guys it's it's a really really good magazine it's not your run-of-the-mill magazine at all yeah, really I thought some Look of the topics that. in there were like like very like things that should be normalized that don't get talked about enough you know I, I don't know if it was in your magazine or maybe it was one of your guys's recent posts even today um, about black women finding a therapist and like how difficult that is. And it's not even something that's talked about in mainstream. I feel like enough. And it's, it's something that you guys cover in your magazine. So um, you guys really do cover a lot of different things that are pertinent to, to people and, and the issues they face. So, that, I, you know, that's great of you guys to, to st really get ahead of the curve here a little bit and not just kind of go along with, you know, the, the same old status quo of what's, you know, coming across our timelines every day. Yeah, definitely not the status quo. That's for sure. And luckily, you know, if you don't have access to the magazine, which you can buy on subscribe online, you can also check out their learn section. I know they have lots of educational topics where they're offering workshops online. So tell us a little bit more about that aspect. Yeah, so there's sort of two two branches to double blind. The first branch is what we've been talking about, which is the journalism and the magazine. And the second branch is education. Because as soon as we started writing about psychedelics, as mentioned before, we realized, oh my God, there's a lot of people who want to read about psychedelics. 
and they're reading about psychedelics and then they're getting curious about psychedelics and then they're wanting to do a psychedelic <laughs> and then they're feeling like, okay, how, how do I even go about this? It could be a very overwhelming, right? Like what psychedelic do you do? Where do you get the drug? How do you prepare for the experience? Are you ready for the experience? How do you make sense of the experience once it's over? There's a lot to navigate. And so we realized, oh my gosh, well, we have this network of amazing experts at all the leading universities because we interview these people for the magazine and for our reporting for Rolling Stone and other outlets. So why not create an educational platform where we can also give our community direct access to these experts to ask all their questions about how to safely embark on a journey with psychedelics, or even if you're already embarking on a journey with psychedelics, how to go deeper or how to get more out of it. And so, yeah, like, like you mentioned, we have, you know, two webinars a month about, um, we have them planned through the end of the year and, we don't have a page on our website, which we should, but we will soon. But we announce them on our Instagram. Um, and we've done everything from microdosing with Jim Fadiman to um, DMT with Rick Strassman to we did one on visionary art with Alex and Allison Gray. And, um, you know, That's in awesome. a couple of weeks, we have one with Sarah Gael on how to trip sit. Sarah Gael is mm -hmm. um, the former director of the Zendo Project, which is MAPS trip sitting project. Um, and then we also have courses for people who want to go deeper that are kind of structured like masterclass where you get a bunch of recorded modules, you get like PDF downloads, live support, that sort of thing. Yeah, the how to grow mushrooms looks very popular. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, yeah. that's like that's like a go-to right now. And that's hard. So, you know, we kind of like think about that. And there's not very many places where you could go to find that information. Um, so for you guys to have a course, like that is perfect. I was going to say, it's really neat um, how Double Blind's really kind of taken shape. And, and just, you know, the names you rattled off there, if you don't already know, you know, look some of those folks up. They are like very established in this community. And I think what's cool is you guys are becoming like a, like a centralized hub, if you will, of all this different information that some of it's already out there, some of it's just now being discovered. Um, and that's like huge for anybody who's been trying to do psychedelic research on their own over the last 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years. I mean, try to get on YouTube and trying to find anything, even then it's like, it's difficult. So um, talk about, you know, the necessity of what you guys are doing. I mean, it's huge to just like pull everything together. Cool. Uh, well, let's switch gears here. Let's uh, let's talk about recently. You were in a Rolling Stone article recently, like yesterday. Mm -hmm. um, you you know you wrote you and Madison wrote this Rolling Stone article discussing uh, you know the, is the federal government going to embrace psychedelics and kind of um, had some different folks on there discussing what to look forward to. But we thought we would kind of just ask you directly. You know, um, what does the future of psychedelics look like in America, and uh, can we expect any kind of movement from our federal government soon or? Um, yeah, so there's a lot happening in the realm of psychedelic reform right now. Uh, in that article, we, we kind of open it up by talking about the psychedelic reform efforts that are happening at the local level. Uh, your readers may or may not know that the county of Denver decriminalized psilocybin in May of 2019. They became the first jurisdiction in the country to decriminalize a psychedelic. Less than a month later, Oakland followed passing a resolution through their city council, which decriminalized 
all natural psychedelics. So that includes ayahuasca, San Pedro, psilocybin mushrooms, iboga, et cetera. And since then, more than 100 cities and counties have had these decriminalized nature groups pop up in an attempt to replicate Oakland's resolution and get something similar passed either at the ballot box or through their city council. And a number of jurisdictions have already been successful. So we've seen Ann Arbor, Somerville, Massachusetts, Cambridge, Massachusetts, Washington, D.C., Santa Cruz. I might be missing one, but there's there's a handful already that have successfully decriminalized psychedelics. Also in November, Oregon uh, decriminalized all drugs at the ballot box. So that includes synthetic psychedelics like LSD and MDMA. And they became the first state to uh, legalize psilocybin therapy. So this is a huge, huge win for the psychedelic movement. Not only are, is psilocybin therapy decriminalized, meaning you can't be put in jail for it, but it's there's actually going to be a state legal infrastructure put in place over the next two years with licensed therapists and facilitators to help people um, through their psilocybin experiences. And so what's to come from the psychedelic movement? Well, certainly we're going to continue to see states, cities, and counties trying to pass legislation like what we've already seen in Florida and Hawaii. We've already seen state senators introduce bills similar to what passed in Oregon in November in an attempt to legalize psilocybin therapy. And then at the federal level, you know, that that article was really more speculative. Rolling Stone was like, what's going to happen to psychedelics under Biden? And I was like, well, nothing's really happened federally yet. Um, so there's lots of hopes and you can read about them in that story. But one thing we know for sure is that MDMA and psilocybin will likely be legal federally as prescription medications in the context of therapy in the next decade, because they've both been given something called breakthrough therapy status by the FDA. But whether we're going to see Congress passing like legislation that makes the access of psychedelics easier in some way, that's very uncertain at this point. I think that the thing we the thing we can really hope for in the next four years, maybe, although we'll see, would be uh, Congress passing some kind of um, appropriations bill which allocates money, additional money to psychedelic research. That's interesting. And I just kind of wanted to backtrack a little bit here because a lot of those places, they just decriminalized it. And so just for our listeners listening, um, you know, what does decriminalize really mean? Is there going to be, can you get in trouble, I guess, for consuming these things? Um, so decriminalization essentially means that the local law enforcement is deprioritizing the possession and growing and gifting of natural psychedelics in most cases, or in Denver, it would just be psilocybin. Um, so this basically means that if the law if law enforcement catches you either growing one of these things or possessing them, that you're not going to end up in jail for it. Um, it's unclear to me at this point whether there will be would be some kind of fine or some kind of ticket, but it's not going to be very serious. It's not going to equate to something that would, you know, derail your life and get you fired from your job. Um, and 
what's interesting about these decriminalization initiatives is that they do include what's called a grow gather gift stipulation. So essentially what they're trying to do is these activists are trying to create a, a scenario where people are able to grow, say, psilocybin mushrooms in their house and gift them to people and not get in trouble for it, even though it's still not technically legal to do that. Um, and part of this is a response to the quote unquote corporadelic movement or all of the kind of new capital that's coming into the psychedelic drug development space. Um, a lot of people in the psychedelic movement feel like psychedelics shouldn't be commodified. So if we can kind of beat these companies to the punch and put initiatives in place that catalyze a homegrown movement, that that would be kind of a um, a a good alternative to the forthcoming psychedelic market. Yeah, that's what I was wondering. So we previously had Kim Stuck on and she is specializing in psilocybin consulting out in Oregon when that becomes legal. And that was my question I had, like, are we going to have like these dispensaries where you go to and you're pur purchasing psilocybin? So I didn't really understand how that whole process would work, but it makes a little bit more sense now that it's more of like this home grow movement where you're kind of just, you know, having it for yourself and maybe, you know, your friends and not the corporate level maybe that we're seeing with cannabis now yeah we had a we had an episode with shara gibson out in washington dc uh probably a, a little bit over a year ago and we were discussing cannabis uh decriminalization in dc and really um you know i, I could be wrong at this point but um, back then basically they decriminalized cannabis in dc but then they didn't put any framework in place for people to even like use cannabis and that sounds like a very similar situation where it's like well it's decriminalized but then how do you end up with you know, like a psychedelic or psilocybin mushroom in your hand, because uh, then it would still be in the eyes of the government, like illegal somehow. And so I think, you know, what it sounds like is a lot of these different things that cannabis had to work through itself of just kind of working through some of these nuances and some of these, you know, different rules. And, it, you know, I think cannabis was also decriminalized, uh, we just discussed in, in San Francisco that kind of set off the whole train um, back in 1993 that led to where we are today with cannabis legalization. So it does sound like there's baby steps being put into place and um, people shouldn't be um, so much discouraged by just decriminalization uh, just because I think that is the first step that uh, we always kind of have to take towards you know softening public perception around these compounds. One thing, though, that did come up in, in some of this and we kind of wanted to talk about today was um, one of your guys' missions with Double Blind is kind of discussing the the corporatization of medicine. And one of those things you just touched on was, um, you know, I don't know the, the word you use, but, uh, you know, the corporatization of psychedelics. And that is one of our concerns right now with, you know, the amount of research that's already been done. Um, should we be, you know, leaning more on the federal government to, to do more research or should we be telling the government to look at what's already been done and um, let's not reinvent the wheel here and move forward. Well, we absolutely need more research um, because we live in a society that reveres data. And unfortunately, there are a lot of people, including government officials, who may or may not at some point be open to passing legislation that would overturn psychedelic prohibition. So we do need uh, more research. Um, it's not a matter of whether we need research. It's a matter of who is doing the research and for what purpose. Um, so in the psychedelic movement, uh, drug development movement, I'll say, 
there's uh, many different actors. You know, you have folks who are just looking at, you know, how do psychedelics actually function within the brain with no intention of drug development. Then you have folks who are trying to get, you know, certain drugs to market, but they're doing so in a nonprofit context like MAPS or USONA. So they're being very transparent about the research process. Anyone who wants access to the research drug can have it. Um, and they've made uh, public statements about their commitment to accessibility and equity when these drugs do get to market. And then you have a bunch of for-profit drug development companies that are raising many, many millions of dollars and in many cases are trying to create innovative models for delivering these drugs or just creating psychedelic compounds that have never existed before. So for example, you'll take like, you know, LS, an LSD compound, and then you'll try to change it so that instead of it lasting like 10 hours, it lasts four hours, or you'll try to invent an ayahuasca that doesn't make you vomit or whatever. And they, and, and these drug development companies say that they're making these changes to these compounds because they're trying to optimize the experience. Why would someone want to trip for 10 hours if they could get the same therapeutic benefit in four? Why would someone want to purge if they don't have to? At the same time, there are a lot of doubts among longtime advocates in the community as to what these companies' intentions really are, because as soon as you change the compound, it becomes eligible for patent, mm -hmm. and then it becomes eligible for profit. And we don't necessarily know, you know how these things are going to be priced when they get to market, and if that's going to create barriers to access for people who really uh, need healing. I think that helps. I think, you know... That helped kind of soften it for me, I guess, a little bit to know that there is good people in this space that have um, the best interest of, interest of advocates. Because what worries me right now is that the push towards more research is going to push it into um, like clinical trials. And as you mentioned, clinical trials, usually that's a ton of money. That is a ton of money that these companies have to recoup somehow. And so what that usually means is these things become patent pharmaceutical drugs. And uh, we've already solved that with Epidiolex and uh, GW Pharmaceuticals here in the cannabis side, and there's a lot of a lot of heat, I guess, on their part of just uh, you know the longtime advocates of the plant itself, just saying uh, it kind of ruins the essence of the plant. And then now there's a lot of CBD people who are scared, saying, "Well, if this is a patented drug, I may not even be able to use CBD anymore because somebody owns you know a patent to this." And um, basically, uh, we can almost kind of expect the same thing with psychedelics if it goes that route of clinical trials and patented pharmaceutical drugs of, um, you know, there may not be a natural component that is almost legal if it, you have to go through a uh, your pharmacist or your doctor to get prescribed something. Yeah, that's not going to happen. Um, psilocybin is in the public domain. Um, and there will always be um, people who are growing their own medicine. There will always be people who are doing ceremonies, psychedelic ceremonies, whether or not they're legal, although we're hoping that we're going to see an amendment to the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, which will make it easier for people to administer psychedelic ceremonially, but that will always happen. Um, there will always be retreat centers abroad, although those are often prohibitively expensive, unfortunately, um, where people will be able to go experience these things. So, you know, I, I, I'm not afraid that, um, 
you know, psychedelics won't be accessible any longer uh, to people. Uh, but I do think it's a legitimate fear that um, certain types of psychedelic therapy or psychedelic compounds may not be accessible um, if those are patented. And so, you know, what we have to ask ourselves is how many people are suffering in the United States or around the world who might benefit from a psychedelic experience and will never have a psychedelic experience on their own or outside of the context of FDA approval because they are afraid or because of the stigma of psychedelics. For example, my grandma, mm -hmm. you know? Um, and so I think, you know, you and me and everyone else who's already doing psychedelics and has friends who are growing mushrooms are going to be just fine. But that's not what we're talking about here. When we talk about the psychedelic movement and we talk about the impact that the psychedelic movement could have on the global community of human beings that exist here on planet Earth, what we're talking about is, you know, how can psychedelics actually create like a mass healing that humanity really needs? And, and what does it look like for psychedelics to break out of this sort of like, you know, this, this frankly, very insulated psychedelic community. Sometimes even Madison and I feel a little bit like a double blind for preaching to the choir, um, which is why we've been talking with folks at the decriminalization campaigns about what does it look like to bring psychedelic education into community centers, to partner with police departments, to educate them on the therapeutic potential of psychedelics. Like, what does it actually look like mm -hmm. to break out of our communities? Yeah, that, that's what I'm thinking about. There's so many different, like, to, in order to keep it like a grassroots movement, as well as, you know, start to bring it to the masses in a very, a way that's conscious, you know, that we're not losing track of why we started with, you know, spirituality and healing and all of those types of things. How do you find that balance and bring it forth in the most natural, holistic way that we need to be doing it You're so, you right, know, these yeah. people can heal? It's tough. But I applaud you and everybody yeah, else who is like it's, moving it it's forward. It's a tough position, you know, and, and I think, you know, like, like the people you mentioned, like MAPS and kind of what they're doing, I think those of us who are advocates and who are maybe scared to see kind of this thing as it maybe just rolls out into the mainstream and, you know, there's a chance of it becoming corporate just like everything else has. Um, I think we just have to kind of to put our energy into those who are doing good, like MAPS and everybody else who's a part of, you know, the good movement and just keep supporting those people and make sure that the good research does get out there and that um, this thing is steered in a direction where we do keep, you know, accessibility in mind. Because as you mentioned, you know, our grandmas, you know, I don't know if my grandma would necessarily want to just like eat mushrooms or take a tab of acid. So no. you're right. Or to go through, you know, ayahuasca or something and have that experience. Um, so I do see the benefits of, you know, tailoring these things to make them, um, more consumable and and make it uh, not as scary of an experience, I think, for some of these people. So, um, you know, as, as all things in life, there's a, there's a balance. And so uh, you got to find that balance. I think, you, you know, at Double Blind, you guys are definitely doing that. You guys are doing great. Well, I think even when you're talking about like terminally ill patients or end of life situations, that would probably even make people a little bit more comfortable, you know, like versus just, you know, getting it from your friend down the street, you know, being able to go to your therapist and have this full on ceremony and session with them would probably make them feel a lot more comfortable in those types of situations. Oh, man. Cool. 
There's so many things I'm still thinking about. (laughs) (laughs) There is still a lot ahead, I could tell you that. Uh, You know, I think this is like the movement really is just beginning. And I think these questions we had today and kind of what we discussed are going to be kind of, you know, extrapolated out over the next couple of years. And these conversations are only just, you know, starting to unfold. And so uh, we are no doubt going to be looking up to double blind and kind of following your guys' lead and kind of, uh, you know, keeping our ear to the, to the ground and, and seeing what's to come. So uh, thank you guys, first and foremost, for what you guys do at double blind and, you know, sticking your necks out there and putting this stuff together because it's not an easy topic to, to discuss on a lot of fronts. Yeah, well, we appreciate uh, the support of our community and folks like you. Uh, really, we wouldn't be here if it wasn't for the fact that so many people have been so supportive it keeps us going every day. It's not an easy thing running a media company in the 21st century. No, absolutely not. So for people who are interested and want to find you guys online or purchase the magazine, how do they do that? Everything is at doubleblindmag.com. You can subscribe to the magazine. You can buy our courses. If you want to attend our webinars, again, we we do announce them on all our social media platforms. And we're at Double Blind Mag on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and now TikTok. Follow yeah. us on TikTok. <laughs> you can be our 132nd follower. <laughs> I love it. Oh, my gosh. Well, there you go. Well, Shelby, we like to end the episode with something fun. Uh, we are the Lit and Lucid podcast. So are you lit or are you lucid? I'm lucid. <laughs> There you go. There you go. (laughs) I love it. All right, you guys. Well, thank you so much. This was really fascinating. I I could hardly wait for all of our listeners to get a copy of the magazine. It's seriously, I look forward to it. How many ever comes? When does it come? Every four months or three months? It's twice a year. Twice a year. issue Issue five will be out in June and we're hard at work on it. I think it'll be our best issue yet. And it's worth it, you guys. It's worth the only two times a year that you get the magazine. I love it. <laughs> any any sneak peeks we can get right now? <laughs> I'm trying. I'm trying to think of what we have going in the issue. Um, off the top of my head. Oh. You're just gonna have to buy it. I'm sorry. Yeah, <laughs> I'm just blanking right now. It's no. not good timing. Um, no but I'll circle all. back with you on that. Totally. No worries. All right, you guys, with that, I'm lit. I'm lucid. And that's it. Laters. Laters.